You got me now, Mike? All right, great. Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all, especially, um, I just want to welcome again those of you who are visiting uh, with us today. It's your first Sunday. We're so glad you're here. It's a great Sunday uh, for it to be your first Sunday. We're starting a new series this morning uh, that I'm really excited about. Uh, just to kind of set that up for us, uh, we are a community following Jesus in Houston. That's kind of who we are, and we are learning to live into that vision uh, what that means is we really kind of take on Jesus' call to be apprentices uh, to him, to, to really step into the fullness of his way of life together. And we do that uh, by taking on three goals. We have three goals uh, in our life together. It's to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And so that kind of shapes the way, uh, the rhythms of our community in a lot of ways. And one of the ways it does is through uh, the ways that we work our way through Scripture. So over the summer, for example, we were in Jonah. We were spending some time getting started in Matthew. Uh, and so that's what we do. We kind of focus on a book of the Bible. And then every once in a while, we'll take a break and focus on uh, what we call a practice, uh, a practice of Jesus that we want to take up and kind of work into our life together. And so if you were here in the spring, uh, you know that we had a practice that we took up. Uh, you may remember it was the practice of silence and solitude. Uh, and really, you could say that practice kind of focuses in on that first goal, not exclusively, but kind of focuses in on that idea of being with Jesus. And as we turn into the fall, I want us to take up another practice of Jesus uh, that really is kind of leaning into that last goal of do the kinds of things, do the things that Jesus did. And so today's sermon is entitled Radical Ordinary Hospitality. Radical ordinary hospitality because that is what Jesus practiced. That is the practice of Jesus we're going to look at. We're going to look at his life. We're going to see why it was so important for him and for his mission and his ministry. And then we're going to spend uh, the next several weeks, five or six weeks, really kind of unpacking what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus and our own ministry and mission. I think this, um, this practice of radical ordinary hospitality is critically important for us as followers of Jesus. Um, it's something that I think the church has lost, at least in the West. It's something that we don't practice at least well most of the time. And I think there's, uh, there's a lot of cultural pressure that's dictating that. There's a lot of things going on in our lives that kind of force us away from this practice of Jesus. In fact, over the last several decades, we've been experiencing what uh, sociologists call uh, kind of the post-Christian culture. It's this radical shift in a new direction for our entire culture. And if that's a new term for you, post-Christian culture, really the, the best way to think about it is basically that, that, that kind of Christianity, the Judeo-Christian worldview has shaped much of our Western and particularly American culture uh, for hundreds of years. And the reality is that that shaping hasn't gone away. Just because it's post-Christian doesn't mean that the values that are inherent kind of in our culture, things like justice, things like freedom, aren't still a part of our culture. But what has begun to happen, what is happening, is that our culture is kind of pushing back against kind of this Judeo-Christian worldview. There's a rejection of that worldview by a larger and larger portion of the culture. And so it's moving into this, what's called a post-Christian culture. And one of the consequences of that change, 
I think, is that people are less and less likely to kind of look to the church and to trust the church uh, as kind of a, a place where they can turn in need. And, and they're turning to other things. All kinds of other options in our culture are becoming more and more um, common. Things like Eastern meditation, for example, or, or practices you know, like, like maybe like yoga. Things that people turn to kind of in the place of this, this spiritual option uh, called Christianity. And, and, and it's funny, you know, on a Sunday morning, it's just really interesting. You think about the myriad of options that you could have instead of being here. I think about the, there's, there's a, there's a, actually there's a new cult that is sweeping across the country on Sunday mornings. I don't know, have you guys heard of brunch? Yeah, it's just, it's just everywhere. People are, I mean, just brunching every, all, every Sunday. There's, I, I just see them at the, you know, brunch is such a huge, it's just sweeping the country. It's, it's amazing. Um, you know, it's interesting. One, one Christian author writes, uh, she writes this. She said, let's face it. She said, let's face it. We as followers of Jesus in this post-Christian culture, um, we have become unwelcome guests. She goes on to say, our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where faithful expressions of Christianity are dismissed or are denounced or seen as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitive, sensitivity training has reached uh, levels of, of kind of an Orwellian nightmare. Christian common sense is called hate speech by the keepers of the new culture. The old rules don't apply. And many Christians don't know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. And that rings true for me. I, I, I can identify with that description of kind of our new reality. And I don't know if it rings true for you, but if it does, it, you know, if it's disorienting. There's a dynamic there that is, is confusing for us to kind of figure out our place in the world and how to relate to the world and to people around us. And if you feel that, you're not alone. That is our cultural moment. And one of the questions I think in this cultural moment we have to ask faced with this reality is we, we have to ask in, in, in that kind of milieu, how do we invite people to follow Jesus? How do we actually invite people in, into the life that, that we have encountered in Jesus? I mean, most of us are here, some of us are here considering, investigating, we're not sure where we're saying, but many of us have come to know this Jesus and he's changed our life. We, we've come to know this Jesus and his kingdom and, and he's, he's given us this new love for, for God and for one another, but also for our friends, for our family, for our neighbors. We love them and we want them to experience the life, the joy, the hope, the peace, all that comes with life in Jesus. We long for them to know that. And so the question is, in, in a moment like this, where there is at times just out and out hostility to that view, to that belief, to that way of living, when there's that hostility, that awkwardness and insecurity inside of us, how do we invite people to follow Jesus? One option is that we don't. I think we're tempted to take that option often. We just keep our heads down. We keep it private. We don't talk about Jesus unless we're kind of in a safe place like this. You know, another option is that we... We basically redact the gospel. 
We take out the parts that are offensive about Jesus to kind of our, our, our current cultural sensibilities. We just we don't want to offend anyone. And so we don't say any of those parts about Jesus. But I do think there's another option. And it's this practice that we're going to look at today from the life of Jesus that can help us, I think, in this cultural moment to love and invite others to follow Jesus. So I want to invite you to open a Bible. There's probably one in the seat back near you if you want to grab one real quick. Uh, we're going to look just at those verses I read just a moment ago, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read it again because we just, we just heard the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, and maybe it's a story that's familiar to you. But I do want to draw our attention to a few things. And the, and the first thing I just want you to do is notice what Jesus says at the very end of this encounter with Zacchaeus. In verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. So just bookmark that in your brain. Just hold on to that phrase because we're going to come back to it. But, but as we... We enter into this story. I want to highlight a couple of things really quick that I think illustrate why what's happening here is not some kind of cute Bible story that maybe we heard when we were kids or, or, or this, uh, this cute story about Jesus and, and this kind of, you know, shorter guy named Zacchaeus. That this is actually a really disturbing story. This, this is a story that would have made its original Jewish audience incredibly uncomfortable. And so I want to I show you why. First, it would have been really disturbing because Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Now, we've talked about this some before, but again, tax collectors, they are basically traitors. They're, they're Jewish people who have betrayed their own people in collaboration with the Roman occupying empire to extort money from their own people. That is their role in society. And so you can imagine they're hated. They are despised. In fact, in the Jewish kind of social ladder, they are the bottom rung. That's why you see them grouped in the Gospels. You read this little phrase of tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes. That's kind of where they are in the social strata. They're the bottom, the lowest of the low. Now, when we hear that, uh, some of kind of the shock of that is lost on us. Um, you know, the reality is that when we hear these things like Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He ate with prostitutes. Um, it doesn't cause this visceral reaction that it would have for this original Jewish audience, for the people in Jesus' day. So I, I want to try to get us there emotionally just a little bit by doing a little experiment. So I want to try to equate what Jesus did in his day with what he might have done in our day. So just go with me here on a little thought experiment. So I just want you in your imagination to imagine if you heard... Let's say you heard that Jesus was having dinner with someone in your neighborhood who you knew to be a convicted child abuser. Or imagine, imagine for a moment that you, uh, you caught on your Twitter feed that Jesus was seen in downtown Houston having lunch with a, 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 a well-known white supremacist. Right? Or, or there was a video that got leaked of Jesus eating a meal in a cave in Iraq with some members of ISIS, right? How does that feel? How does that feel, just even in your imagination, to, to, to go to a place like that? 
I mean, is there a part of you that feels like, mm, that doesn't seem right? That, that's confusing. That's off. That, no, I, I, I think you've missed something, David. I think you've crossed the line. That's not appropriate. Like that, then you're beginning to get a, a, a taste of what the people in Jesus' day would have been experiencing when he said, I need to go to your house today, Zacchaeus. He was a traitor. He was the lowest of the low. He was despised. And yet Jesus said, I want to eat with you. So the first reason that's disturbing is because Jesus says, I want to eat with Zacchaeus. Second reason it's disturbing is this, because he says he wants to eat with him. He actually makes a point to say, I'm going to come and eat at your house. A meal with this man is what's being pointed out. And again, this is a little bit lost on us because in Jesus' day, meals meant more um, than they do now in our culture. Meals uh, were incredibly significant because who you ate with and who you didn't eat with said a lot, right? Who you ate with and who you didn't eat with said a lot. So just think about what we can relate to this. Just think about who you eat with, right? Think about who you sit down at a table with on a regular basis. Usually it's probably your friends and family. Those would be the first kind of two groups. Um, and, and then beyond that, it's probably people who are like you, people who are from the same, same kind of socioeconomic background, tend to be the same educational background as you, uh, probably same race and ethnicity as you. Just think about who you tend to eat meals with. Because the reality is that, that meals mark out lines for us, lines between us and others. And this is true of all societies, but it was especially true in first century Jewish culture for all kinds of social and all kinds of religious reasons that we don't really have time to dig into. But suffice it to say that for Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, to enter the house of someone like Zacchaeus was completely forbidden was absolutely unacceptable for faithful Jews. And yet Jesus does it. It's interesting, one Catholic theologian, he said it this way, he said, Jesus actually gets himself killed because of who he eats with. It's that radical. He ate with all the wrong people. For Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker, in other words. They weren't, they weren't about uh, putting up a sign of who's in and who's out. They were a welcome. They were an invitation into the kingdom of God. Not a way of keeping people out, but inviting them in. And why is that? Well, again, just to come back to those final words of Jesus in verse 10. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. So, what's interesting about that phrase is the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What's interesting about that phrase is that the gospel writer Luke, he uses that one other time. And if you want to flip over and look with me, you can see it. It's in Luke chapter 7, verse 33. He uses the exact same phrase, the Son of Man came. And what he says there in Luke 7, 33 is, For John the Baptist has come eating uh, no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, 
And you say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What I want you to see is it's the same phrase that Luke uses here about the fact that Jesus came eating and drinking. That's who he was. That's what he did. He came eating and drinking with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, those who are far from God, in other words. And what's interesting is in the Gospel of Luke, there are at least 50 references to Jesus and food. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's at least 94 references to Jesus and food. In other words, um, as one scholar said, in the Gospel of Luke in particular, Jesus is always on his way to a meal, eating a meal, or has just come from a meal. Yes, I want to become like this Jesus and do what this Jesus did, right? He's a foodie. Love this guy. He loved to eat meals with people. It's all over the Gospels. It's undeniable that it was central to who Jesus was. Tim Chester, in his uh, book called Meals with Jesus, he says that these two phrases, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, actually represent Jesus' mission and his methodology. In other words, what, what he's saying is that Jesus, why did he come? To seek and save the lost. How did he do it? He ate and drank with people far from God. Even, even people that were hostile to him. Hostile to his way, to his kingdom. And so how did he do it? How did he relate to a culture and to those in that culture that were against him, who had no interest in religion or God? The short answer is one meal at a time. That was his method of sharing the gospel. I was talking about this with a friend recently because I'm still kind of wrestling with this and learning how to do this. What does this look like, God, in, in the midst of our lives with, with three young kids and just the busyness of life? And we're going to unpack that together mostly next week, kind of look at how do we actually do this. But I was talking with a friend about this, and um, he, he just articulated something that I think many of us probably feel as I'm talking about meals as a method. And what he said was um, it just made him uncomfortable and I think what he was getting at was he, he felt this skepticism about this as a, quote, method. Because I think many of us, we're just aware we live in a world where, you know, we're constant targets. In particular for kind of network marketing. Isn't that what I'm talking about? Like, hey, um, I'm having a bunch of my friends over for dinner. Why don't you all come over? And you sit down, and you're having a great meal. And about 30 minutes in, the brochure comes out, you know. Hey, this is a product you didn't even know exists, but you can't live without. You know, that kind of thing, you know, and, and nothing against that. Um, but I just think that has kind of put us in a place where we're skeptical, right? We're skeptical about anything that seems that intentional and purposeful and methodical, even though it truly was a method for Jesus. And so we, we look at that and we kind of we think, ah, you know, I don't, wanna, I, don't wanna, I don't want this to be like the Jesus version of that, where I just invite my friends over and then halfway through the meal, I kind of figure out how to work in. Hey, I just, you know, I know we're having a great dinner, but I just want to ask, do you know where you're going to go if you die tonight? You know, just kind of work that into the conversation, <laughs> which would be terrible. That's not what we're talking about, right? That's not what we're after here when we talk about hospitality. Um, and so what we're after is something that I think we see in the life of Jesus. Because here's the thing. 
Jesus was constantly, constantly talking about the good news of the kingdom. He loved talking about God, about his Father. He loved sharing this love, this new way of life with people and inviting them into the healing and to the wholeness and to the life that was available to anyone who would put their trust in him. He loved talking about that. And it seems, it seems based on the Gospels that eating meals with people was a central practice to his method of how to share the good news. So here's my question for us. What if it became a key part of our way of life when we share the good news with others, with our friends, with our neighbors? What if we made the effort to meet people right where they are, to love them right where they are, to invite them into our life, invite them around our table so they can begin to experience the life that we've come to know in Jesus. This practice of Jesus in the New Testament, it's called um, uh, philozenia. Can you say that? Philozenia. That's the Greek word for hospitality. And it literally means um, to love the stranger. That's what it means. Love the stranger. Uh, in her uh, book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which I highly recommend you pick up a copy of. Um, in her book, um, Rosara Butterfield, she defines hospitality this way. I love this. She says, hospitality is turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Hospitality is turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. It's expressing this welcome of God to the other, to the stranger, through things that are kind of tangible expressions of God's love. Simple things like food, shelter, friendship. Just to take it a step further, in the New Testament, not only is this held up by Jesus, modeled by Jesus, but it's actually commanded. Did you know we are commanded to take up this practice of uh, hospitality? Look, Romans 12, 13, Paul says this, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Literally says, practice hospitality, this love of other. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. How do we do that? How do we express the love of God? He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, he adds. Without grumbling, right? Sometimes it's hard. We're busy, we're tired. Hospitality is not always easy. Sometimes it's really exhausting and risky. He says, do it without grumbling. Hebrews 13, 1, I love this verse. It says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters and don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I mean, just mind blown. I don't even understand exactly what that, how that works. But hospitality is this divine reality in the spiritual realms. That's part of what is being said there by the writers of Hebrew, writer of Hebrews. So we see this over and over again. In 1 Timothy and Titus, hospitality is listed actually for a quali- as a qualification for leaders in the church. Right along the ability to preach, right along things like being respectable. Right along the, the side of all these kinds of things that we typically think, oh, this is amazing quality of leadership. Hospitality is listed right there. And so we're commanded to carry on this practice of Jesus. And one of the things I love about this practice is that it is so ordinary. 
It's ordinary. And I think if we took it up, I think it would be life-changing for us and for the people around us, for our neighbors. To quote Butterfield again, she writes this. She says, those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality, they see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Have you ever thought about your home that way? A gift for the furtherance of God's kingdom. I mean, how many of us think about one of the most ordinary pieces of furniture in our house, our table, as a place where there could be radical ministry, a place where the, the Holy Spirit could move powerfully in someone else's life. Because hospitality, it's ordinary business, but your table has the capacity to become a, a place that is set apart, that is holy, where lives could be changed. Now, having said all that, I think it's important just to, to address something because I, I can feel a little bit in the room, there's gonna be like hospitality, that's cute. <laughs> that's cute for some of the people here. Maybe that's your thing. That's not really my thing, but that's cute. I'm glad God calls some people to do that. Just again, God calls all of us, commands all of us to hospitality. And I think part of the challenge we have there is our perception of hospitality. Um, and hospitality is different than entertainment. Maybe this will help. Hospitality is not the same as Martha Stewart uh, living cover, right? Hospitality is not the same as uh, the Instagrammable, um, you know, kind of uh, farm table, uh, farm to table dinner in the backyard with the vintage twinkly lights. I love that stuff. But that's not, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about here. In part, not all of us can do that, certainly not all the time. And what Jesus is talking about is a practice. It's a rhythm. It's a natural part of our life. And, you know, for all kinds of reasons, maybe it's financial, maybe it's the restrictions of where you live right now, maybe it's your, your, your season of life. We can't do that all the time. And so what is, what is the difference between uh, hospitality and entertainment? One pastor came up with a list, and I think it's really helpful kind of contrasting the two. So let me just uh, hit this real quick. Entertainment is about exclusivity. You're invited, you're on the inside, you're part of the in group. Hospitality is about inclusivity. It's an open table where anyone is welcome, right? Entertainment is about performance. You get to show off your home, your nice things, your cooking skills, your wine selection. Hospitality is about service, it's about service, about making people feel loved and welcomed. Entertainment, it has a clear line. There's a host and then there's guests, right? And again, this isn't like a value judgment. I'm just distinguishing between the two, right? But there's a difference because that's what entertainment looks like. Hospitality blurs that line between host and guest. You know, there, there's kind of a participatory nature to what's happening in your home and around the table. Entertainment is sporadic. You schedule, you calendar, you plan it out. It's a big deal. Hospitality is a way of life. It's regular. It's spontaneous. It's an open-door policy. Entertainment is about reciprocity. I have you over, you have me over. That's kind of how we go. We go back and forth. Hospitality is about generosity. There's no strings attached, no expectation of something in return. Entertainment is about social capital. There's a dynamic where, um, you know, you see this in the Gospels. Jesus hits on this when he talks about who to invite. He talks to his disciples, like, who do you invite to your dinner party? 
Remember this? He talks about who you invite. He says, don't invite your friends, your family, your neighbors, the wealthy. Don't invite those people. Invite the poor, the lame, the blind to your banquet because they can't repay you and you will be blessed by that. And so there's, a, there's this dynamic. Entertainment kind of trades in social capital. You know, there's, there's this kind of upward mobility that's connected to it. But Jesus turns that on his head. Hospitality becomes about justice. It's aimed downwards. It's about inviting people into this kingdom reality. This is how the gospel spread, was through hospitality. And you can see why. You can see how. How, how it would move from home to home, from table to table, how people encountered People's lives have been changed and they wanted to know that Jesus. Because Jesus came eating and drinking. It was central to his mission to seek and save the lost. And so again, I just want to ask, what if it became central to our way of life? What if it was a practice that we took up as followers of Jesus when it comes to loving your neighbors and sharing the good news of Jesus with them, what if your first inclination, in other words, was to invite them not to an event or to a Sunday service, as great as that is, what if your first inclination was to invite them into your home to sit at your table and eat a meal with you? There are people on your street, people in your apartment building, people in your dorm who are lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And that word lost, maybe that rubs us a little bit the wrong way. But can I just say that word, Jesus doesn't use it as a pejorative term. He uses it out of his love for us. We're lost. And he came to seek and to save us. When you're lost, you want to you wanna find the way. And so we want to invite those around us who are searching, who are longing, who are lost to find the answers, the life, the healing, the hope, what they are actually looking for in the person of Jesus because he came to seek and to save them. In a post-Christian culture, how do we walk with our friends who don't know Jesus? How do we invite them into this way of life? We do what Jesus did we eat with them and we drink with them. We get to know them. We listen to them. We love them. And we can do it by sharing the gospel over a meal. This is why we do things like Alpha, over a meal. This is why meals are central to our life group. Our time together over a meal shapes us in powerful ways because it's this practice of Jesus, radical, ordinary hospitality. Next week, we're gonna talk more about how we actually do this in the midst of our busy, overcommitted uh, lives. But this week, I just wanna leave you with two questions. I wanna encourage you to just write these down or maybe send them in a note to yourself. I wanna encourage you to take some time and think about these two questions. Who eats at your table? Who eats at your kitchen table, your dining room table? And then second, I want you to just consider, do I see my table as a powerful tool to love and bless my neighbors? Have I ever thought about my table, about my meals? And, you know, just back to that first question, some of us, what we may need to do is just wrestle with the fact that 
we don't even eat at our table. That we're so busy. We can't even remember the last time we sat down as a family, as a couple, with just some good close friends just to have a meal on a regular basis. So who eats at your table? Do I see my table as a powerful tool to love and bless my neighbors? And we'll pick it up next week. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are the God who came to seek and save the lost, and you are the God who ate and drank with those who were far from God. Lord, you've shown us this beautiful practice. Would you help us just to think through and allow our imaginations to really engage with this this week? And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would you would help us to see our homes as gifts from the Lord and our tables as sacred places where people's lives can be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.